Hi, friends. Welcome to Unyielding, a podcast for Pathways to Hope Network, where our goal is to connect with mothers of children facing the juvenile justice system while giving a voice to the struggles you're facing. Hi, ladies. I'm Angie, and this is episode two in our first series, Into the Unknown. And we're breaking down the basics of what you can expect while walking beside your child through the juvenile justice system. In episode one, we started looking at what to expect in the court system. I started by going through the basics of what happens after an arrest and what you could expect at the first hearing. We talked a little bit about public defense attorneys, and then we ended it by talking about terms and conditions of release. Most importantly, though, I hope that you heard me when we talked about how having a child in crisis is not an indicator of whether or not you are a good mom. I also shared a little bit about Pathways to Hope Network's website and the resources that are available to you through it. I know it was a lot of information, and I also know that it may not have been enough information. So today I kind of wanted to pick up and continue where we left off in that last episode. Uh, We're going to talk today about charges, so felony charges, misdemeanor charges, what's the difference between those? Sometimes um, when you start hearing terms that are said in court, you don't really know how that impacts or the seriousness of whatever that crime is just based off of those charges. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. My goal is to provide you with some basic information, but like I said before, there's a lot of ins and outs that I'm not covering. There's just no way to cover it all. And so if you have a question that I didn't cover, I just want to make sure that you know, you can always email me at closedgroup.pathways at gmail.com. That's closedgroup.pathways at gmail.com. And I'll do my best to find you an answer or at the very least point you in the right direction, try and get some answers to you. I also feel like this is where it would be really responsible for me to put in a disclaimer. This podcast represents my own opinions and experiences. I'm not a professional. I'm just a mom like you who walk through this journey with my child. And while I try and make every effort to ensure that the information that I'm sharing with you is accurate, I absolutely welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Uh, The content that I share here should not be something that's taken as legal advice. It's simply for informational purposes only. And because each of our situations is so unique, I would always recommend that you take any legal questions you might have to a legal professional. So we'll go ahead and get started, but don't forget that at the end of this podcast, I always try to give at least one piece of practical advice on something that you can do today. These tips that I give, they're designed to help slowly shift you onto a path where you feel a little more in control. Right now, there's so many things that are going on outside of you and outside of your control, and that is just a recipe for breeding anxiety and depression and really struggling with some serious issues. And so I want to make sure that there are small things that I can do that will help you to keep your focus on the things that you can control. And so after the information portion of this podcast, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So there's usually three different reasons that kiddos are being brought in to juvenile court. 
The first one is known as a status offense. It's also called an infraction in some places and in some counties it's known as a civil unit matter. These are things that come to the court because they're addressing a behavior that's going on in the child that is a violation only because it's a child and it's not an adult. So if you think about things like truancy, like not going to school, or if there's a local curfew where you live, not following that local curfew, uh, things like running away or underage drinking, those are all things that are considered infractions or violations because they're under the age of 18. In Washington state, the legislators and the parents, they worked together here in 1995 and they created what's called the Becca Bill. The Becca Bill was created to address making some rules and some policies on how to handle things like truancy and at-risk youth and runaways. So different counties offer different programs here in Washington state as part of their obligation to make sure that they're providing court services that are under this bill. The most common programs are known as truancy, at-risk youth, and a program called Child in Need of Services. These programs are designed here to help struggling parents when their kids are not going to school or they're behaving in a way that the parents feel like is endangering their own health and safety. Maybe the child is not necessarily um, breaking any laws or hasn't had any arrests or charges, but they're having problems with substance abuse. Or sometimes it's just about getting services which are designed to help resolve any conflicts that might be going on inside the home. So for those of you who do reside in Thurston County, I'll include a link to the local county website where you can learn more about these programs in our show notes. So that covers infractions or status offenses. Hopefully that makes sense. Now let's talk about misdemeanor charges. Misdemeanor charges are usually less serious than felonies, but more serious than status offenses or infractions. So some misdemeanor charges could be things like vandalism. It could be shoplifting or what's known as simple assault. In terms of outcomes, cases involving misdemeanor crimes They may be sent to diversion. We talked a little bit about diversion in episode one. So they could be sent to diversion. They could also involve fines that have to be paid. There might be community service hours that have to be worked. There's usually probation of some type. Uh, There could be electronic monitoring that happens, or the court could order classes like anger management classes or something. It could also include time that they have to serve in detention. Here in Thurston County with our diversion program, it's actually mandatory that first time charges of a misdemeanor or a gross misdemeanor go through a diversion program. And what that does is it routes the case away from the courts and to a community board. It's a good opportunity for kids who are just getting in trouble for the first time. And it's not a very serious offense to have the opportunity to handle that situation without it being something that goes on their record. You can find more information about the Thurston County Diversion Program in the resources tab of our website at pathwaystohopenetwork.org. And I'm going to make sure that I put a link to our website in the show notes below as well. 
So the third and final type of offense is what's known as a felony. Now, felonies are usually more serious crimes. They usually involve some type of physical harm or a threat of harm. It could also be something that's similar to a misdemeanor crime like theft or vandalism, but it has like a greater monetary value of damage that occurred. As far as outcomes go, certain felonies may still qualify for diversion, but uh, they could also include time served in juvenile rehabilitation, community service hours, same electronic monitoring, There may also be treatment or counseling programs that they're required to go through, as well as probation services. So let's talk about degrees now. What do those represent? Degrees are basically assigned to indicate like a level of seriousness for a charge. A first degree charge would be considered more serious than a second or a third degree charge. All right, so let me give you an example. Let's take theft, okay? Theft in the third degree which could also be theft three, could be charged for a crime like shoplifting, while theft in the second degree might be charged to someone who was also shoplifting, but what they were shoplifting was over $750. So it's a higher value, so it's theft in the second degree. Let's say someone stole a car, Um, or something that was more than $5,000, that would be considered theft in the first degree. So first degree crimes are much more significant crimes than third degree crimes. And hopefully that makes a little bit of sense as far as the degrees go. Another term you may hear about is counts. So for instance, you may hear three counts of theft three. And counts basically mean a charge. So one count equals one charge. So if there's multiple counts, that means that there were multiple offenses of that same charge. So it's the same offense, but it happened multiple times and they're being charged with all of them at once. I hope you guys are tracking along with me okay. I know that this is a lot of information and I just wanna remind you that you can always consult with the attorney that is assigned to your child if you have a public defender or your private attorney if you have questions. You can also do quick Google searches if there's a term that comes up and you don't know what it is or what it meant. Like a quick Google search will help you find clarity on what terms mean too. Or if you belong to any of our Facebook groups, you can always post in the Facebook group too and uh, somebody would be happy to help answer that question for you. Now, I'm sure that you have all heard the saying that knowledge is power, and that is so true on this journey. As parents, we are kind of thrust into this world that can be really intimidating. I remember the first time that I went to court and like I just sat there looking around at all of the people who were in the courtroom on both sides, the people who were waiting to go up for a hearing and the people that were on the other side that were attorneys and prosecutors and probation counselors and judges and court clerks. And it was really overwhelming. It felt like a lot. And I didn't know what the terms were. I felt like everything was moving so fast. Once my child got up there, I wasn't even sure what happened after everything was done. I just knew, okay, we're free to go. I didn't, I didn't understand any of it. 
And I relied pretty heavily on our attorney to help explain things, but I know that sometimes the attorneys are not always readily available. And as parents, we are so overwhelmed by the emotional aspect of everything that the idea of trying to grasp the legal side of things, it feels just like a battle that we're just not equipped to fight. But trust me when I say that the more that you can shift your focus away from feeling like you're at the mercy of those who are around you to explain what's happening to you, and you can understand things on your own about what's coming next, the more that you will feel a sense of control. Not control over the outcome, of course, but control over yourself. Instead of feeling like you're being dragged along behind everybody on this journey, you'll be on your feet and you're walking and you may not like where you're going. The path there is not going to feel the best, but you'll be on your feet and you'll be walking behind them. And believe me or not, it makes a difference. So that's the purpose of this episode and of episode one is just to be able to provide you with some basic information so that you understand a little bit more about what's going on. So let's shift gears to what's known as a plea deal, okay, or a plea bargain. You may have heard that term before. A plea deal is when an agreement is made between your child and the prosecutor, And the agreement says that if your child agrees to plead guilty or no contest, then the prosecutor makes an agreement that they're going to uh, do something on their part as well. So they may drop one of the charges, they may reduce the charge to a less serious offense, or sometimes they recommend to the judge a specific sentence that they feel like is acceptable and that the defense feels like is acceptable. The majority of the cases I've seen that come to the juvenile courthouse result in some type of a plea deal. For some parents, it's distressing when we hear the plea deal. This is our first glimpse of a possible outcome or consequence for our child. And there are a lot of emotions that are tied to that. I think for me, it really brought the reality of the situation to the forefront of my life. I was finally forced to see what this had all been leading up to. And honestly, it felt like too much. And almost every parent that I've met, including myself, who heard the plea deal that was offered to their child, felt like it was a punch to the gut. I'm not sure of the psychology behind it, but I think that it has something to do with the fact that we've had weeks of anticipation and anxiety around how this scenario was going to play out. I mean, sometimes months, it drags on and we've built up all this anxiety over how this is going to all play out. All of a sudden, there's a reality to it. And there's an outcome that's right before us. And it's no longer something that we can just hope is going to go away. And every thought of how this is going to impact the life of our child and our family, it comes flooding through this tiny crack that's in our hearts and our minds. The other thing that you're going to learn through this process is that the attorney represents your child. Well, yeah. 
Angie, you might be thinking, of course they represent my child and not me. I'm not the one, obviously, with charges filed against me. But hear me out because this can be a tough one for parents. Your child's attorney works for them. So whatever your child wants to do is what they'll do. Let's say you hear the plea deal and your initial response is outrage at the offer. There is no way that you see this offer as a viable option because ever since this whole thing started, your child has been adamantly denying to you that they committed this crime and you're their mama. And even if there's a part of you who thinks that they might be capable, you want to believe the best of them. And so this plea deal is out of the question and you are certain that there has to be a better way to handle this. However, your child's attorney has looked over the evidence and they have had their own conversations with your child and they're familiar with the judge and they're also familiar with other cases that have gone before the judge in the years preceding and they advise your child that the plea deal is pretty standard and it likely won't get much better. Your child at that point could choose to take the plea deal regardless of what your feelings are about it. The same would be true in a reverse case scenario. Your child could also decide against the judgment of you and their attorney to not take a plea deal and instead go to trial. Here's the thing. I'm not saying you don't have influence because you, my friend, you are their mama and you absolutely have influence and should have influence over this decision. You should guide them and direct them as best you can. You should talk to other parents who've shared these experiences with you and educate yourself as much as possible so that you can weigh in and give an opinion. But I want to make sure that you understand that even though they are still a minor, your child's decision is 100% theirs. And that can be a hard pill to swallow if you don't believe they're making the right decision. And real quick before we move on, let's rewind a little bit and talk about that scenario. The one where your child is adamantly denying they committed a crime. Man, that's a tough one. We want to believe our kids are telling us the truth. Listen, do I believe that there are kids serving time for crimes that they didn't commit? A hundred percent I do. This system is far from perfect, but I also want to say that the number of kids I've met who've initially come into the courtroom accepting full responsibility for what took place right out of the gate is so small that I can't even tell you what percentage it would be. In another episode of this series of Into the Unknown, we'll explore what your child may be experiencing and feeling during this process. But for now, I'll put it simply and say this. Sometimes when we know that the consequences we face are severe, a survival instinct kicks in to protect us with any attempts it can that will help us to avoid facing it. Listen, Ma, we obviously want to believe our child because we are their biggest advocate, but we should also remain open to the idea that perhaps they're afraid to tell the whole truth, not just because of the consequences, but also because it means facing our disappointment. And whether they act like it or not all the time, that is a big deal to them. Now let's talk about what happens if your child passes on the plea deals and decides to take that matter to trial. 
Juvenile trials here in Washington state are decided by a juvenile court judge. I'm not sure what it is in other states, but they're not decided on by a jury. It goes before a judge. So that judge is the one that's responsible to listening to all the evidence and then making a decision. Like I said before, the majority of the juvenile cases are usually resolved with some type of plea deal before trial ever comes to pass. Attorneys tend to believe that outcomes that result from the negotiation with the prosecutor can be more favorable and less risky than having a juvenile go to trial. However, having said that, your child's attorney should carefully advise your child of all their options before a decision about trial is made. So that's something that you can really advocate for with your child, you know, talking to your child, making sure that they understand what their options are. And then if they don't, that you're assisting them And being a voice to make sure that they aren't just blindly signing a piece of paper or going off of the judgment of what one person thinks. They're making informed decisions as best they can as adolescents. After a plea deal or trial comes sentencing. It's also known as disposition or sanction. A sentence is basically the legal consequence or expectation that's associated with that conviction. So types of sentences could include probation, it could include fines, there might be time served in juvenile rehabilitation, it might require that there's a payment of restitution that's done to a victim, there could be community service, just a variety of different things that you might see on a sentence or in a disposition order. During the court process, your child was probably assigned to an intake probation counselor. These are also called probation officers in some place. And this person was basically responsible for monitoring your child during the court process to ensure that they followed all their terms and conditions. In some cases, you may have heard from them frequently. In other cases, you may not have heard from them at all and didn't even know you had one. So if your child's sentence includes probation, which it likely will, they're going to be assigned to a new probation counselor. This probation counselor's job is basically to monitor the disposition order or the sentence that was given and to support your child in being successful. Here locally, there's a risk assessment that's done prior to the assignment of a probation counselor, and it's used to determine your child's risk level and any needs that they might have so that a plan can be made based on that risk assessment on how to best help them. Probation counselors are also responsible for giving your child any tests that they might need to make sure that they haven't been drinking alcohol or doing drugs. They monitor your child to make sure that they're following court orders. They might oversee your child's rehabilitation. They also do recommendations or reports that the court uses as they need to. And the purpose really of a probation counselor and of probation period is to let your child stay in the community while supporting them to get their life back on track. In my own personal experience, there was definitely a shift that occurred here for me. By the time we reached this point in the process, my defenses were up. I was strongly motivated by fear. And to be honest, all of my mama bear senses were on high alert. I understood 
that there was a need for consequences, obviously, but I really struggled with believing that the courts and I were both looking out for the best interests of my child. It just didn't feel that way to me at the time. To me, throughout the process, it felt very much like an us against them, and that's something that I really struggled with. Now, I'm years out from it, and as I've processed through it, I can see that the way that those consequences helped us grow, and I can see that while I may not agree with every aspect of how things were handled along the way, I do believe that it was for the greater good and best formation of my child. My child needed to receive a solid message that their behavior will always result in either a negative or a positive consequence in their life. And even as I say these words, I can hear my own voice and probably yours as well saying, yeah, but, and yes, 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 yes. There are a million different things to consider. And I know where you're coming from. And I hope that for now, you'll just trust me when I say that it will take time, but they will heal from this. And so will you. Your family will recover from this. Now, probation was a positive experience for us. Once we understood the idea that the counselor that was assigned to us had the same end goal that we did. Their purpose was not to police my child by micromanaging and watching for a slip up that they could just punish, but to encourage them to believe the best of them and to hold them to a standard and a belief that they were better than this mistake. And for the first time, guys, I didn't feel alone. Mama, if there is one hope that I have for you, It's that you're blessed with the same experience we had because honestly, it was a game changer. I just want to help ease your mind a little bit about this probation process. I know a lot of moms who keep in contact with probation counselors years later because the relationships that they developed with them during a tough season in the life of their kiddo was pivotal in how they were able to manage things moving forward. And I know that that was certainly the case for me. So my advice when it comes to probation is to keep communication open. Express how you feel. Be open to learn from the years of experience they've had. They really can be an amazing ally for you and your child. Okay, last up is record sealing. This may be a way off in the future, but I think it might ease your mind a little to know how it works. So in general, when you have an arrest or a conviction, it appears on a record. This means that this mistake follows you wherever you go, whether you're applying for a job, getting a credit check for a loan, or finding a place to live. Oh, my Lanta, cue panic mode. That makes me anxious just saying it. Okay, wait, take a deep breath here and just stay with me for a minute. Let's talk about the job situation. Most kids who are around 16, 17 are just beginning to open up to the prospect of getting a part-time job. It's a rite of passage that most of us experienced, and I think we all agree that it's really beneficial to their independence and their development. But for a lot of moms that I know, a giant fear rose up in their hearts when they started thinking about whether their child would ever even be able to get a job and if they would have to 
check that dreaded, have you ever been convicted box? Well, I have some encouraging news on that front. And we all know that encouraging news seems few and far between these days. So sister, we need to take it when it comes and hold on to it tighter than a cell phone over the toilet bowl. Ban the box laws prevent employers from asking candidates whether they have ever been convicted of a crime on a job application. Some ban the box laws prevent employers from learning about possible criminal convictions until after the interview or even a conditional job offer. These laws are all regulated at the state level. So some states have them while others don't yet. Each state may have their own name for it. For instance, in California, it's known as the Fair Chance Act, while Colorado calls it the Chance to Compete Act. The last time I checked, there was 36 states that had adopted the policy. Now, there are some exemptions, such as jobs in healthcare facilities, daycares, state criminal justice agencies, and things of that nature. But if you'd like more information on this, you can check out the link to our resource page on our website in the show notes below. All right, back to record sealing. Having your record sealed makes it so that the criminal record is inaccessible without a court order. So in some cases, it may not show up at all if you have a check in your history and you are legally able to deny that it ever happened. Now, each jurisdiction is going to have their own process on how this record sealing takes place. So here in Thurston County, our juvenile court does an amazing job of handling record sealing. They submit the paperwork after your child's 18th birthday automatically without having to go through the process of your child petitioning for it themselves. The only exemption to this is when the crime they are charged with requires a separate process that they have to go through prior to record sealing. But the probation counselor should be able to provide them and you with that information just so that you have it when the time comes. So one more important fact about record sealing here in Washington state, a juvenile record remains sealed as long as there are no future subsequent juvenile crimes or adult felony charges in their future. So any future crime could result in the unsealing of the earlier crimes that were committed. Hopefully that makes sense. All right, so that wraps up the information portion of this podcast. But before I go, I want to make sure I give you at least one piece of practical advice. When life feels really big around us, it's really easy for us to get stuck in our what nows and to question if the decisions that we're making are the right decisions. And what happens is our brains begin to operate in this fight or flight mode and our ability to think rationally about things or to manage our emotions, it becomes hindered. Okay, so when we are in fight or flight mode, it's nearly impossible for us to think through something rationally. And so a lot of times you might have situations where you're hearing about something for the first time or you're thinking about what's going to happen next and you can't even begin to process what the next thing you should do is. And that is because our bodies, our minds are in that fight or flight mode. So it can be really helpful to have some practical things to focus on that can help calm down your nervous system and to help reduce the levels of cortisol in our body. 
So cortisol is a stress hormone. It's like this built-in alarm system that we have in our bodies. And it's amazing to have if you're being chased by a predatory animal or you need to respond quickly to a dangerous situation. But if that alarm, that cortisol stays on, it's bad news. It leads us right down a path towards anxiety, depression, sleep problems, headaches, weight gain, and there's so much more. So while these practical tips I'm giving, they're not going to sound like much. Trust me when I say that these tiny steps that you take, they all add up in the end. The path to hope is about doing the little things in your control to help you get through this journey feeling good about how you led your family through this season and also about extracting every single ounce of growth that you can out of this experience. Because even in our biggest battles, and no doubt this is one of them, there are hidden opportunities of value for us to take away from them. So this week's practical tip is this, keep your normal routine. Spend some time thinking about what your normal routine looked like before this all began. What did your mornings look like? Did you wake up and have a cup of coffee? Did you eat breakfast? Did you go for a walk? How about lunch? Did you pack a lunch every day? Did you make a habit of going out with a friend once a week? In the evening, after everyone was home, did you watch a favorite show on Monday nights? Routines are important. Listen, when life around us begins to feel like a giant dumpster fire rolling down a hill heading straight for us, it is more important than ever to have a routine. In fact, studies show that adhering to family routines have been identified as one of the most important factors for family resilience through crisis. But it's not just your family who will benefit from it. You will benefit from it. And mama, in case you forgot, you are the anchor holding this ship down. So you have to take care of yourself. There's no understudy for your part. There's no relief pitcher who's going to step in if you can't make it to the ninth inning. Jen Hatmaker is an author I follow on social media, and I once heard her say that as a way to establish healthy routines, she began to think of herself in the third person. All right, this sounds weird, I know, but stick with me here. If while on her way to bed at night, Jen noticed that she hadn't set up the coffee pot for the morning, it was easy for her to walk past it and say, oh, well, I'll deal with it tomorrow. But instead, if she thought about morning Jen and how much morning Jen would appreciate having a hot cup of coffee ready when she woke up, she was more likely to do it. Then when morning Jen woke up and was pouring herself a cup of hot steaming coffee, she would feel gratitude in her heart to evening Jen for taking care of her. Now it sounds silly, but I tried it and guess what? (laughs) It actually does make a difference. Morning Ange feels so loved when evening Ange takes care of the dishes, leaving her with a clean kitchen to start the day. And evening Angie is so appreciative of morning Angie for making the bed and putting her favorite book on the pillow so it's there when she crawls into bed at night exhausted. As moms, we're used to doing and giving to others all the time. But when it comes to taking care of ourselves, we drop the ball again and again. 
So this week, try to establish a few things that you routinely do to take care of yourself and stick to them. Let me know what you think. All right, ladies. Well, thank you so much for listening to Unyielding. I hope you found this information helpful. I know it was a lot, but I hope it served you in some way. If you did, could you show some love to this community of mamas by leaving a review and subscribing? You know how lonely this journey can be, and it makes a big difference in helping other struggling moms out there find us. Oh, and don't forget to check out Pathways to Hope Network's website. The link will always be in the show notes below, where you can access an ever-growing library of resources like a list of local and national resources that may be helpful to you on your journey, a page entirely devoted to frequently asked questions, as well as our blogs that cover a variety of topics. When you visit the page, remember to subscribe so you're added to our monthly newsletter designed to encourage and educate you throughout the process and beyond. You'll also receive access to our closed Facebook group community where we break down this podcast even deeper. Just a reminder, our closed group is a small group of parents just like you that understands what it's like to have a child going through the juvenile justice system. So take advantage of this opportunity to be part of a safe space where families can come together to talk about their struggles, help answer questions, and provide judgment-free encouragement. You can also find our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, where we post five days a week, posts which are designed to help you keep fighting. Remember, family is like life. It's a fight for territory, and once you stop fighting for what you want, what you don't want will automatically take over. Until next week, friends, remember we are stronger together.